Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Abe Faur, the rabbi of Congregation Ohel David and Sholomo in Manhattan Beach, New York. Rabbi Faur was ordained by Rabbi Mordechai Yahu and Rabbi Abraham Shapira. He teaches Talmudic and rabbinic thinking in accordance with the Andalusian sages and the teachings of his father, the great Chacham Jose Faur, Alava Shalom. His father was a Sephardi rabbi teacher and scholar in the Syrian Jewish community of Brooklyn for many years. About him, Rav Mordechai once said, the greatest Sephardic Chacham living in the U.S. today is Rabbi Faur, and his books and articles continue to have a tremendous impact in both religious and academic circles around the world. His son, Rabbi Abe, joins us to discuss various topics carrying on the legacy of his father. We would like to introduce Thank you for joining us. It's an absolute honor and pleasure. So the first question we have for you is, what is the Andalusian attitude towards Midrashim? What are they? How are we to understand them? And what is the key to learning them the proper way? Right. So, um, you know, when I, when I got married to my wife, she's an art major and she loves art and she would take me to art museums. Um, and I would, you know, growing up, I always used to like science. I was more, you know, into going to the natural history museums in my area rather than the art museums, but I was introduced to art. And, you know, little by little, I understood that, you know, if you're gonna take art as a objective view of what the painting represents and you just take it at face value, well, many times you just won't understand what the artist was trying to convey because art is filled with symbols. Um, and there's different forms of art. There's impressionism, there's expressionism, there's surrealism. So you have to understand um, that when a message is being conveyed, it's oftentimes before you even listen to the message or you look at the message in the case of art, you have to understand the particular symbols and the particular um, methodology. Um, so, so yeah, just give me like a you know a simple example. Um, dreams. Dreams are filled with symbols. We know from Masechet Berachot Perek that the dream symbols need to be um, interpreted. And you know, there's different ways you can do this. Um, you know, Freud, for example, was in a sense aligned with what the Gemara says. Freud took dreams as you know symbols, and the symbols are not to be taken literally but rather you're supposed to see what the symbol represents. And once you understand the representation, you would have a better understanding of the message that the dream is conveying. This is, as I said, aligned with Masechet Berachot, which again, looked at the dream symbol and said, if you see that, you know, and, 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 and try to help people in dreams. Um, you could have a, the Jungian approach to, uh, to dreams is a bit different, right? He says, natural in that, not everything in the dream needs to be discounted as pure symbolism, right? And, 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 and just think of that for a second. So you have the Freudian approach, which says everything is pure symbolism and just understand the symbol. And you have the Jungian approach, which says that dreams, they kind of reveal something um, about our imagination, but it's a way of our expressing our imagination. So yes, there are symbols in the dream, but not everything is secretive, right? So those are two approaches to how to understand the symbols of dreams. 
And the midrashim, the midrashim are an artistic expression by the hachamim of very profound ideas, right? So if it's an artistic expression by the hachamim, then you have to understand, well, how do I read midrashim? It's, it's, it's a little different than reading halachot. You know, the halachot are explicit. The halachot are black and white. The words are rigid. They're always there and they always need to be looked at and understood. And anything you say has to be within the context of the text, right? That's not the way the Agadot work. Because Agadot are an artistic expression by the hachamim of deep ideas, you have to see that at some time, some of the ideas are more secret. generally speaking these ideas need to be understood and assimilated by everyone meaning Jewish law applies to everyone and therefore it can because it's going to be on what is and the purpose for example of the Mishneh Torah was to present the that can be accessed by the public that's not what the Midrashim are. Oftentimes, the Midrashim contain what would be called Sod Adonai Mide'ab, secrets, secretive material. I don't like the word secrets. I like secretive material where the Midrash is talking. It has this beautiful message, but under the message, there could be some esoteric um, messages that are going to the more sophisticated, to those who are worthy of those esoteric messages. And I want to conclude by saying one thing. There are those who say Midrashim are just, you know, it's all, um, it's all non-literal. There's nothing real there. It's all, you know, we can just discount it. It's not serious. It's not real. That's one thing that we have a lot. And then you have some people who say, no, 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 Midrash, every single word is literal. It's all exactly the way it is. And I think both methods, they lose the beauty of the Midrash. The Midrashim are beautiful. They can figure out for a moment, just for a moment. Sometimes you have a poem. The poem is beautiful words and you just enjoy hearing the words. And then under the poem, of course, there's a message. I think that's exactly what the Midrashim are. I don't, I don't like either of the two methods. I want to say, oh, the Midrash is literal and that's all. There's nothing secretive there. The other is, on the Midrash should just be discounted. It's nonsensical. And I think even at the literal layer, it's art. It's beautiful. The Midrashim, they touch certain aspects of our soul in a special way. But together with that, there is the subtext. And there are the Hachamim who can read the Midrash and decode the Midrashim. So I think the Andalusian method of the Midrashim looks at the Midrash as an artwork by intelligent people containing beautiful symbols at the outer level, but profound, profound ideas at the inner level. Very nice. Very nice. Well said. What is the importance of Dikduk and how does that change the way we would understand Sukim? Right. So, you know, imagine for a moment that um, we, we're looking at physics and we're trying to understand some ideas in physics. And, and oftentimes these ideas um, cannot be expressed in human language. They can only be expressed in the language of mathematics. 
So, so you have the scientist or the physicist, he's gonna write, uh, let's say the particular mathematical equations of the general theory of relativity. And he's not careful. You know, instead of writing the number 119, he writes the number 120, right? And instead of writing, you know, um, uh, to the raised to the third power, he, he writes raised to the fourth power, very minor, you know, little, little imprecisions. Well, I mean, we all understand that these imprecisions in the mathematical equation will completely throw the entire equation off skew, and it would be of little value at that point because if you don't if you don't have the precise numbers, the particular uh, principle that's being expressed by those numbers will no longer be expressed properly or be expressed at all. So if you said E equals MC cubed instead of E equals MC squared, well, it's just a little change there. You know, we're talking about the speed of light, 186,000 uh, miles per second. You know, that's, that's, you know, that you have just this little change instead of squared, cubed. It, it, of course, it's a huge change, right? We all understand that. But it's that type of sloppy thinking that we would not tolerate in the realm of science because, not because we're, we're mean, it's just because we wanna understand what is the principle that the scientist was trying to convey to us. So obviously you need to know mathematics precisely. Okay, uh, similarly, we take the Torah, the, when, when God spoke to the Jewish people, he spoke to us in human language. Why? We, subject for a different discussion, I suppose. But God chose human language as the medium through which to express his um, message to Am Yisrael. And when God speaks, right, we have to take those words seriously mm. and precisely. And if we're going to start being sloppy, it's not just a question of, oh, we're sloppy and, okay, that's such a big deal. Okay, so why, why does it matter? Well, it does matter because we want to understand what it is that God wants to tell us. And we don't want to misconstrue that message, right? So the foundation is dikduk. It's not just dikduk, it's linguistics. It's understanding language. It's having a sensitivity to language, right? And taking the words seriously. Now, I'm not discounting the possibility of derasha. Of course. So that's fine. But the foundation, the starting point of any dialogue surrounding the text of the Torah of the starting point has to be, what are the words saying? What is the proper understanding of the words? And, 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 and from there you can say, oh, well, you know, there are certain nuances here and, and those nuances point out in a certain direction. Go ahead, make a derasha. But you need to have the starting point. And the starting point is, a precise understanding and sensitivity to language. So it's a, it's it's in a it's in a way respecting the text, and also when it comes to drasha, it has to kind of build off of the established dikduk and the established um, precise understanding. You can take it further, but if you're just doing drashot, you know, just changing up words and their meanings. That's that's already that would be out of bounds in a way. Uh, yes, I mean you know there was um, I studied to I mean when I was young my father Allah Shalom brought me uh, a Mickey Carey Allah Shalom to teach me to I mean um, and you know 
Nikki Carey is one of the great teachers of Tamim, in my opinion, um, because he really, he loved the text. And let me explain what I mean. If you made a mistake reading, he wouldn't be upset at you personally, you know, why you're why you not good enough, why you're not precise enough, why you're not, you know, doing what you're supposed to do. It was almost like, why are you doing this to God's words? Um, I remember once Mickey was sitting in the synagogue and I was giving a halakha yomit many, many years ago. And uh, this was in Bet Torah in Brooklyn. And um, we were studying, you know, and we started uh, talking about the importance importance of pronunciation and pronouncing the Kiryat Shema properly, pronouncing the words properly. And Mickey, Mickey, Mickey was there and said, I have to say something, Rabbi. I said, of course, please. He was my teacher, you know, since I was a little boy, he taught me how to read Tommy. So my father taught me how to read Tommy, but he brought Mickey in. So, so he says, he says, and like Mickey had a way of talking. He said, you know, can you imagine opening up the newspaper, you're opening up the New York Post and you start reading the words on the newspaper. Would you read them incorrectly? Would you do that? No, you read the words correctly. It's a newspaper, and still you show the proper respect to language, the proper respect to the uh, to the journalist who wrote the article. So you're not going to say the New York Junts. You're going to say the New York Giants, right? Right? Because that's, <laughs> it would be disrespectful to say anything else. It would be ludicrous. He says, how can you open up the Torah? The Torah is God speaking to us every day. How can you miss pronounce the words. That's Mickey. And I, and I got to say that message, I think it's one of the greatest messages, um, you know, in terms of, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to treat God, God's words, less than we would treat the words of any newspaper, right? So when we speak, even when we speak, if I, if I was to, you know, sometimes people speak and they, somebody makes a mistake and naturally somebody else, you, you meant to say this, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You correct yourself. Right. Right. Or sometimes naturally you correct yourself. So why should we hold God's words to a lower standard than we would hold our own speech? Well, of course we shouldn't, right? And that's why Peshat is the starting point. Again, if you're looking at a literary composition, there's a Peshat. You can first read it. You can take it into different directions. You can give it certain interpretations. The reader and the text are always going to interact, of course. But you have to understand the words. If you don't understand the words, then there's, 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 there's no basis for that interaction between reader and text. There can be no possibility of derasha unless you first have the, the, the foundation of the peshat. Baseline. Very nice. So while we're still on the topic of peshat, uh, your father in his books uh, talks about the concept of pshat being census communis. Um, we wanted to know if you can elaborate on what that means um, and if you can kind of just explain the idea of census communis and how that relates to pshat. Yeah, that, that's a little difficult. I'll tell you why. Um, it, it's a little difficult in the modern context. You know, of course, census communist means there was a there was a meaning to the text, shenit pashet. So the peshat is that meaning that was conventionally accepted among the Jewish people. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we know the peshat of ot is not letter, right, or miracle. The meaning that has shenit pashet. The Peshat is Tefillin, right? 
and, 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 and there's a lot of Peshat in the Torah, and the way the Peshat was expressed by the community was in the reading of the Targum. So the purpose of the reading of the Targum, so first of all, there's a personal misvash Targum, right? Because the Targum represents the Peshat of the Pesukim. And by Peshat, we don't mean, you know, this is the dictionary meaning. It may not be the dictionary meaning. This is the way we understand that word. This is the way we understand that Pasuk. So the, um, the problem today with Peshat, and, and, and also by the way, and, and actually just continuing that or finishing the previous point, and they also would read the Targum and the Knis. So when they would read the Targum and the Knis, the Koreh, the Torah, would say the Pasuk, and then the Metargem would say the Targum and the Pasuk. It was that way, it was a Kahal's way of saying, this is our understanding of the Pasuk, right? That's the Peshat. So you have the, the Mikra and you have the, the, the Targum. Today, this is an odd notion. I would even say a foreign notion. Because today, we live in a society where there is no interest in text. Where we, 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 among the Greeks, among the Greek philosophers, the Greek philosophers were, were very derisive of the written word. My, my father writes about this quite extensively. Um, there's an article called, I think, God, God and the Art of, uh, of Writing. Um, and, and, oh, and uh, an article of mine is coming out now in Chakira. I think it's going to be the February or January, February journal. In oh, Chakira, yeah. where I deal with this very issue. How among the Greeks, writing was looked down upon because the words were considered a tool to convey a message. And once the word conveyed the message, there is no need to have the word anymore. The word just obscures things. You have the message. That's it. You got it. That's Greek thinking. Among the Jews, the text itself has its own existence. It's a permanent existence because it's always generating meaning in the mind of um, the reader. And it's important to understand that for this to happen, for, this to be, for there to be a census communis, right? For there to be a peshat, there has to be a, a direct interaction between the reader and the text. Here's the problem. We no longer look at the text independently. I'll give you an example. When Rashi used to study Humash, Rashi didn't use Perush Rashi. I consider Rashi to be one of the greatest Perushim on, the, on the Humash. I love it. I think it's an amazing um, a Perush. Um, but Rashi didn't use Rashi as a substitute for the Humash. Rashi actually read the Pesukim in the Humash, interacted with the words, understood the words, and he saw what the Chachamim said, and he, uh, he, he absolutely brought um, a magnificent um, perushim um, on the Pasuk from, from Sifra, from Sifre, from Midrash Abbaf, from Midrash But we don't do that anymore. We look at the Mefarshim. Yeah. Uh, this Mefarsh says this. The Schoenstein says this. Um, you know, Hurt says this. Rashi says this. We very rarely open up the Chumash and look at the words and try to understand it, try to understand the words, right? We don't even have the tools to do that anymore, right? The, the tools are there, of course. I mean, you have Sefer HaShorashim Vradak, you have Sefer HaShorashim Rabbeinu Yulam Janach. We have the tools, we have the Targum Ankelos, we have, uh, we have the ability to understand, but we don't. 
Rashi says this, Ibn Ezra says this, he says that, the other says this, open up the Pasuk and read the Pasuk and understand the words that you're reading. If you can't understand the words that you're reading in your mind, there's something very wrong with the reader. It's sad, but this is where we are. So, so today when we talk about census communis, I don't even say we could have a census communis, but very few people actually read the text. The possibility of census communis implies a reading public. And at a certain level today, we don't have a reading public to a certain extent. Perhaps there are many who do read, but I'm talking about, I'm looking at the mega picture, at the larger picture in general. And that's what I see. Fascinating. Um, can you give us a brief synopsis of, or the overarching idea of mysticism as articulated in the book, Homo Mysticus, your father's book, uh, like Masemer Kabbah, Pardes, etc., and how attaining post-rational rational imagination is the ultimate human perfection. Yeah. Um, so there are different levels of human development over the course of history. We know that there were more primitive forms of man um, created by God, of course. Not everybody was created to Selim Elohim. I know that idea is a bit shocking, but so different levels of man, and even Adam Arishon, Adam Arishon was created by Selim Elohim. Apparently, as Rambam says, his children did not have Selim Elohim. Cain didn't have Selim Elohim. Hevel didn't have Selim Elohim. It's not until he creates, until uh, he gives birth, rather, to Sheth. Then it says, um, Finally, he succeeded in passing on the Selim Elohim so you see, to, to, his, to his children. So you see, there was different... There was different levels. There was different stages in the intellectual development of man. You, you look at the ancient man. I mean, you look at, you know, man from a thousand years ago, from 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And you see, really, there was, there was a lot of barbarism that, uh, to a certain extent, I would say we have, you know, um, um, developed intellectually and spiritually. And there's a lot of norms from the Torah that have now come, become more established, at least superficially established, um, in society. So, given the fact that there's different developments to man, Harambam, he thinks about the following, and he thinks about it deeply. What, what's, what's the highest development of man outside the context of Torah? And he speaks about Aristotle, and he, he mentions Aristotle respectfully, in the sense that Aristotle represents the ultimate development of man, a rational man, a thinking man, Aristotle was, right? Outside the context of Torah. Meaning, if you look at the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, and you say, what is the ultimate level that a goy without Torah and Mitzvot can reach? Aristotle, and we said that with respect. We, 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 and by the way, I, I, have, I just want to say this as an aside. You know, people don't understand. Just because Harambam is not Mekalel Umharef. I mean, I don't think he's Mekalel Umharef anybody, actually. But they say, oh, he doesn't curse Aristotle, because there will be others who say, you know, Arur or whatever, they'll say that words. That just wasn't Harambam's style. I don't think it was the style of any of the Andalusian Hakamim to go on tirades and start, you know, um, 
you know, uh, twitching their eyes, you know, and foaming at their mouth because there's somebody they don't like and, and they have to express their displeasure at that particular person. That's just not the way of the Chachamei Andalus. It's not, it's not even the way that, I don't think, I think the real Chachamim and from the Gemara and earlier, that was, you know, the, the, the way. But nevertheless, so Aristotle doesn't insult, <laughs> um, is not insulted by uh, Harambam. It doesn't mean that Harambam, you know, somehow was subservient, you know, uh, to Aristotle. Uh, nevertheless, the same way I can speak about um, I can sp- speak about, I, I give some classes on Bereshit. I spoke about Stephen Hawking's. I spoke about him respectfully, because I believe we should speak respectfully about other people. I, I think a lot of his ideas are limited, scientifically speaking. And not everything he says conforms with the Torah, but I saw some things that conform with the Torah, and I, I gave some classes on it. I thought it was very interesting. So people would say in a thousand years from now, aha, Rabbi Abe really believed in Stoke Stephen Hawking's. None of the Torah on his spoke. His Rebbe was Stephen Hawking's, but his whole thing was, you know, to bring Stephen Hawking's in. That was the icon, and the rest was just a fell. I mean, that's, you know, no, nobody can take that type of scholarship seriously, I don't think, right? So they do that to Harambam all the time, you know, because he he didn't foam up the mouth when he mentioned the word Aristotle. Oh, he really loved Aristotle. That was his real love. Anyway, getting back to the original question, I just, I really had to interject that. So Aristotle was a rational man, and we give him credit for that. Harambam gives him credit. He was rational. He had rational thoughts. He had intelligent thoughts. It was science. He presented things scientifically and logically. But that's where you can reach outside Torah. If you are within the world of Torah, you can go much farther than rational thinking. You can reach the Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh is a different type of knowledge. It's a different quality of knowledge. It's a knowledge that doesn't come as a result of rational thinking. One plus one equals one, and therefore one plus um, equals two, and one plus one plus one equals three, and there's some sort of, you know, uh, you know, logical progression, and you can, you know, make proofs and theorems. Okay. Ruach HaKodesh is a different type of knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes from above. We can't explain it. The, uh, Daniel says it best, and I want to tell you the pasuk in Daniel, because he says, Yahev hochmeta lehakimin. Hashem gives um, uh, wisdom to the men of Chochmah. Hashem gives special insights to those people who have insights, meaning there are certain types of knowledge, of insights that come not from logical thinking, but from above. And, and here's the point, to, to, and this, I think, addresses your question directly. Hu gale amikata. God can reveal the deep secrets, um, stat, um saterata, there's hidden things. So that's the esoteric knowledge that Anabam is talking about. Where does that come from? Can I reach that through logical thinking? The answer is no. We need something from above to inspire our thoughts and to take us to a higher level of consciousness. And that's the purpose of the Moneh Nebuchim. The purpose of the Moneh Nebuchim is to teach us how to break free from the Aristotelian world and reach that level of, that Daniel is talking about. So that we can see the amikata, so we can see the mesaterata, so we can see the nistarot, right? That's why you need the guy to take you there. You can't do it alone. So, you're, so the post-rational imagination, which is obviously prophecy, 
it it appears to be the highest level of uh, human achievement. But my my question is, was that actually the case? Because with Moshe, we don't we see that he didn't need the imaginative faculty. He he kind of went beyond it. He uh, um, bypassed it. So isn't that isn't rational thought really the highest um, achievement by man? Right. So um, there is, uh, as, as, as and, I'll, and I'll kind of, I guess, put it this way. So you have the rational thinking like Aristotle, which is just using the brain and, and, and using the mind to try to um, reach certain conclusions about the world around us. And by the way, uh, and, and I should mention, we don't believe in objective approaches or, um, or to analyze things objectively because we're all structured. Our minds are structured based on the language that we speak, but put that on the side. Let's call that rationalism nevertheless. Rationalism does not mean objective truth, okay? Okay, now we have the Nevi'im and the knowledge of the Nevi'im was some sort of inspiration that would be predicated upon imagination. And my father discusses this at length. How did it work? It was always wisdom, knowledge, chokhmah, and from there you would go to Dimayon because the Dimayon would be guided by the chokhmah. So it wouldn't be like, you know, um, I know some people, um, uh, some people take uh, drugs and, and do things that are harmful and uh, um, they, they, different types of drugs. So um, I was listening to Joe Rogan. He has some good podcasts. Some of them are good. Um, uh, so, but he speaks about, I think the name of the drug is uh, Ayahuasca. Yeah, something like that. So anyway, so he says that he sees different creatures. He sees different alien creatures and other people see alien creatures. So that's the mayon. That's, that's a type of imagination. And a person who uses his wisdom to guide his dimayon would not see these demons in the room smiling, at, you know, and, 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 you know, whatever those demons are doing or whatever, whatever he's seeing. A person who, we, who uses wisdom to guide the dimayon with, of course, Hashem bringing the person to where he needs to go will actually have an intelligent thing to say. Meaning, if Yirmiyah Navi sees, for example, a makel shaked, he sees an almond tree or an almond, a tree from an almond tree, it's not about what he saw. It's about the message that's being given. There's an intelligent message that comes out of that vision. If only you have the vision that's just naked dimayon, naked imagination with no wisdom. But when the dimayon is guided by the chokhmah, you have an intelligent message. So what do these demons tell you, Mr. Jarogan? I respect, by the way, I, I, I'm not saying it derisively. I, I do respect him. I think he's a smart person. But what do the demons tell you? Well, give me, give me something. Did they give you a new scientific principle? Something? So if you can't under, answer that question, then that's just dimayon. The Nevi'im always come back to us with a, an amazing message, right? Right. So, um, you know, nachamu, nachamu, ami, echem, or whatever the message is. Shiftu dal ve'atom. That's an amazing message. Shiftu dal ve'atom. Do justice in the world for the poor and oppressed, not just for the powerful. Um, so, um, in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, it was a different type of knowledge. It wasn't rational thinking. It wasn't dimayon thinking. How that is, how did Hashem communicate to Moshe Rabbeinu directly, as opposed to the Nevi'im, who it would be through Dimayon and through Malachim? Well, that's like, 
that's outside the scope of this uh, particular discussion. But I do acknowledge, I, yes, you're correct. Then in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, there was something higher then. So again, you have Aristotle rationalism. You have Nebi'im um, rationalism or Chochmah guiding the Mayon. And then you have a message at the end. That's how you know it's real. And then you have Moshe Rabbeinu, who is, doesn't need the Mayon to guide his wisdom. Somehow he gets a direct message from God. And, he, and then he tells us what he tells us. And again, we know the Nebuah is what it is because of the wisdom of the Nebuah. So I'm happy you brought up the, the thing about uh, the demons, with not the demons, but just whatever those elves are that Joe Rogan was talking about, because um, in the Agadah of Pardes, um, we see that um, Acher, Elisha uh, ben Abuya, sees some type of being that's not God, and he comes to the conclusion that there's a duality, that there's a, another force outside of God. And then he, he loses himself. And uh, he didn't have that chokhmah guiding him. He didn't have the, there was no message other than this kind of, just imagine, it was just imagination. The imagination seems to overtake him. And, and we see with Rabbi Akiva, he, he kind of puts his head down and goes through because some, you know, a wise man like Moshe turning away from the burning bush, you have to sometimes realize you're not ready to receive, you know, certain information. You're not ready to process it. You're not at the level, let's say. So I think uh, you using that example of Joe Rogan was actually brilliant. Thank you, thank you. And 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 yeah, the problem with Elisha Ahed is that he didn't understand the, the difference between the symbol and that which is being symbolized between the signifier and the signified. And this happens quite a lot. So people have these experiences, they have mystical experiences, perhaps, and they don't understand how to deal with the symbols around them. And they give it a certain um, reality, which assumes that the symbol is that's it. That's, that's the message. And it, that's never the case. There's always something behind the symbol. And when you conflate the two, you get to the point of what he did was, uh, right, he eventually ended up in a bad place. Right. Just to recap, just so I know that I understood you correctly. So regarding the prophecy of Moshe, so you were saying that there's a level of the rational, then there's a level of the imagination being guided by the wisdom, right? Post-rational imagination. And post-rational. And then, um, so for Moshe, you wouldn't call it that he had a a nevoah through rationalism per se, but rather you're you're saying that it's, not it's not from the rational it's not from the imagination it's something off the map well correct because rational thinking you know when we talk about rational thinking outside the context of aristotle so aristotle is a biological being and as a biological being he has certain tools he has eyes which allow him to process certain wavelengths of light not all wavelengths not all electromagnetic wavelengths but so you know at, within a certain spectrum right so that's something he can't see everything with his eyes, right? There's infrared, there's ultraviolet, and other animals have process different wavelengths, right? So he has a, a nostrils, you know, he can, you know, he has a certain ability to inhale and perhaps a sensitivity to certain smells and molecules, not all smells and molecules, but some, right? But the brain is the same. You know, the brain is a tool that allows us to process certain types of information, perhaps not all types of information. So the brain is limited, Hanuman discusses. The limitations of the brain. The problem of people is that they don't understand 
they, uh, you know, people think, oh, I'm thinking, I have a brain. You know, I can think about it. I can think about anything. I, you know, there's no, you know, you don't realize, well, the brain is a very limited, it, it's an amazing tool. It's absolutely incredible. It boggles the mind. The brain boggles the brain, if I may. Um, but the point being, the brain itself is limited. It's a particular tool that processes information in a particular fashion, and you will reach particular conclusions depending on many, many different factors, right? The brain is not unlimited, right? Um, C.G. Young used to uh, talk about different, uh, you know, in his days, um, psychology was looked down upon, you know, because it's not, it's not a real science, it's, you know, it's how you're thinking, right? So it's, it's not real. And, and, he, and, he, and he, I think he pointed out quite intelligently, well, no, actually, the only science that is real is the science of psychology, because all other sciences make an assumption that there is an objective ability to process information and reach conclusions just independently. But as C.G. Young points out, well, actually, it's the brain that's working in processing the information. So maybe I think the world is flat. And maybe the, the reason I think the world is flat because there's something in my psychological profile that makes me comfortable with a flat earth. Or maybe I think that the earth is at the center of the universe. Perhaps that's a better example, Ptolemy of the universe. And I like the earth being at the center of the universe because psychologically, that's something that fits in with my profile, right? And I'm the Catholic church. And when Galileo says, wait, hold on, guys, actually the earth is not at the center of the universe is a Polish astronomer called Copernicus. And I think, guys, I think he got it right. It's actually the Earth going around the sun and the planets going around the sun. And when he says this, well, um, they throw him into the dungeon because they can't deal with that. So the brain is not a perfect tool. The brain inhabits human beings and human beings have psychological profiles. And I'll give you another example, global warming. I'm not saying it's correct. I'm not saying it's incorrect. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm not saying it's not happening. Everybody's, um, you know, that's, that's science and politics and, you know. But whatever conclusions I reach, they may be very convenient for me, right? So perhaps it's not just all scientific, right? Rarely are scientists objective scientists. Scientists always have a particular agenda, whether conscious or unconscious. It was a archaeologist called Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock, also another... A person Rogan, interviewed yeah. on uh, Joe Rogan. Yeah. Fascinating discussions. He was put into Hedem. He was basically put into Hedem. I know that scientists like to make fun of Jews or you know, other religions. We're so, we're so dogmatic. They're the most dogmatic people in the world. Nobody's more dogmatic than a scientist who gets funded by a particular institute to forward a particular perspective and a particular narrative. And then somebody forwards another narrative. Boy, do they attack that other person. I mean, look what they did to Graham Hancock, the guy who you couldn't publish his articles. If somebody dared to publish his articles, he would be put into Thailand. It doesn't matter that Graham Hancock was right at the end, by the way. What, he was this right. About, this is about the age of the pyramids? Is that what? Uh, well, no, about the uh, there being ancient civilizations in uh, the North America. Okay. Right? It doesn't matter that he was right at the end. But what this demonstrates clearly is science is not about science. Right? That was the point of C.G. Young, and I think he had it right. Science... Yeah, it's great. You have amazing discoveries with science. Rationalism is great, but it's limited because the human brain is part of the human psyche. It's part of the human being. And you don't always have the ability to get everything right. You're conditioned. Mm. Everybody is conditioned. So Moshe Rabbeinu, his, what you call rationalism, was not rationalism because it wasn't a product of his biological being. 
it was a pure product. Well, I don't want to get into esoterics. I don't discuss esoterics in public, but let's just suffice it to say it was a product of his neshama, his yeah. non-biological being, which is completely different than Aristotle and rational thinking. And I think, yeah, and I think it's amazing. Thank you, Thank you for not sharing. Yeah. Uh, but actually, <laughs> the um, yeah, I think obviously people get a bad rap for being quote unquote rationalism, and it's it's, it's kind of put on us, um, and it's not. I guess, for lack of a better word, people just say Rambam was a rationalist, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. This term is really not. It's there's nothing rational about you know Judaism or whatever. You know, it's not it doesn't. It's just an unfortunate label that is just put on us. And uh, I'm I'm glad you. Um, elaborated and explained for some of our listeners who, you know, like to use that label in a derogatory way. So thank you for that. Yeah, uh, uh, let me just have one uh, conclude by saying um, nothing can be more irrational than to post the label rational on a person like Kanabam who wrote the Monet Bukhim to free us from rationalism. Yes. Hmm. Wow, amazing. Uh, okay, so um, in regards to Harambam's use of quote-unquote necessary beliefs, some scholars argue that a portion of his statements in the Mishnah Torah, the Igro, 13 Principles of Faith, and more Nebuchim did not reflect his, his true opinions. A lot of scholars maintain that. Uh, would you agree with that assertion? And what are the pitfalls of viewing Harambam from an academic lens? Okay, so one of the great things about Hanambam is that he's such a clear writer. I mean, I can look at, you know, all the Rishonim, amazing minds, amazing Chachamim, amazing Bekiyut. I mean, you look at the Rishonim, that tremendous, tremendous knowledge of the Torah, incredible. But Hanambam was special, not just because of his knowledge of the Torah, but because he had a way of expressing himself so clearly. He's probably one of the clearest writers ever, maybe in the history of our people. Um, and he states that these Yodgim Karim, these 13 principles, are fundamental to Judaism, fundamental to the Torah, so much so that if you reject these principles, if you expressly reject, if you say, I don't believe in this, or you say, I don't believe in that, or whatever, um, I mean, you're right, like really, really clear, right? He's like really making his position clearly. He's articulating it in a very... Um, unambiguous um, fashion. And I would say that no writer could have possibly expressed himself more clearly about a particular matter uh, than Harambam did about the 13 principles. So if Harambam didn't really believe in them, let's get back to Galileo. We mentioned him before. Shall we then say that perhaps Galileo didn't believe in the Copernican view of the solar system? He probably had a secret agenda. Would that be taken seriously by any scholar? I mean, the guy was thrown into the Inquisition. He died, I think, in the dungeons of the Inquisition. Perhaps we should say that Newton really didn't believe in the law of gravity. Right? There was a secret agenda there, but he didn't really believe in it. He didn't, he didn't believe in the mathematical um, formulations um, regarding the strength of gra gravity um, decreasing with the distance, right? Based upon the um, inverse square law. He, he didn't really believe that. I mean, he said it, but... I'm now a new scholar and new discoveries have been made about Newton who didn't believe that. And perhaps Einstein didn't really believe in the general theory of relativity. Um, and he saw no real contradiction with quantum mechanics. He actually accepted Niels Bohr's um, quantum me uh, mechanical view of the universe that God does play dice with the universe, right? I mean, would anybody take this type of 
thinking seriously? Would anybody fund, give a single penny to a scholar who says, I want to show that Einstein didn't believe in the general theory of theory. I want to show that Galileo didn't believe in the Copernican view of the universe. Would anybody in any field take anything of this nature seriously? You know, I want to say that um, it's not just that Anbam said things clearly and unambiguously. He was a very passionate. I mean, you, you can't ignore the passion that he expresses, right? I think it was Pablo Picasso um, who says that art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. He was passionate about art. You know, if I had to put this in the case of Maimonides, I would say that, you know, perhaps it would be that the Torah washes away from the neshama, the dredges of the, of the emunot surrounding us, right? And the purpose of the Torah is to cleanse our neshama. And at the foundation, at the foundation of that is the 13 Ikarim, right? The expression of the 13th Ikarim is the very foundation of the emunot of Am Yisrael, of which Hanabam is so passionate about. So, I mean, can you say it? Yeah. It can, will, will there be people who fund this type of research? Sure. Is it credible? Can we take it seriously? Is it, is it fair to Harambam when he's so clear about his beliefs and so clear about what lies at the foundation of Judaism? And, and he not only says it, he explains it and he articulates the connections between the Torah and the Pesukim and the Esodot. And finally, he's so passionate about it. Right? He's so like, passionate about it. Why do you so, feel like yeah. with him, with him specifically, you just feel like everybody has, you say like, my monodies, your monodies, everybody's got their uh, Maimonides, right? So yeah. the, the, there's this, for some reason with him, it's like everybody wants to read into what he's actually saying as if to say like, he, you know, he's a true, um, he, he writes in code and he's, 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 he has these messages. Obviously we don't do that with everybody else. So what is it about him that makes people think that? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Hanabam was just such a, he had such a clear, simple articulation of Torah and Misvot. It's such a simple articulation of Torah and Misvot that you really have two choices. You either join Torah and Misvot or you pretend like he didn't say what he just said. I really think that the reaction to Hanabam is a psychological reaction. People can't handle the truth. Yeah. They can't handle the truth of Harambam. They can't handle the truth of the Torah and Misvot. Yes, you should follow Torah and Misvot. We're not going to force you. That's exactly what's so scary. We're not going to force you. Right, we, we're not going to force you. You should do Torah and Misvot. And if you read Harambam, you're like, yeah, this kind of makes sense. So like, so, so what do you do with that? Well, what do you do with that? And, and, and then the only thing left open is to attack Harambam, when he said E equals MC squared, he didn't mean E equals MC squared. When he spoke about the general theory of relativity, he didn't talk about the general theory of relativity. And when this scientist said this, he didn't mean that, he meant something else. Okay, right. It, it's more of a psychological reaction than an intellectual reaction. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. All right. So changing gears, um, 
your father's book, The Horizontal Society, really opened up our eyes to the dichotomy between what would be the horizontal society versus a vertical society. Can you explain to our audience the general scope of this work and how it relates back to our tradition? Yeah. So, you know, we live in the Western world and the Western world has been pretty good. I mean, historically, it really has been a, a nice progress in mankind, especially in the case of the United States of America with the founding fathers, um, you know, setting forth in the constitution, certain biblical ideas of human rights. I don't like the word human rights, but I do like that biblical rights that people have. And, and, and there's, been a certain, there's, there's been a certain progress. But there's no hope. There's no hope for the Western world. And the reason there's no hope for the Western world is ultimately the only thing to protect the rights of man is the idea that there is a berit between God and his nation. It's only within the context of the berit that the rights of man can be protected. Because here you're saying as follows. There's always going to be ruthless political leaders who want to deny rights from men for whatever reason, for whatever reasons, right? Who take away those rights to help the people who brought them into power, to help themselves. And this has happened throughout history. It's not, you know, I don't need to repeat what's happened over and over and over again in history. The idea of people being denied basic rights because the leader wants to take away those rights use the people, abuse the people, and this happens. The only possibility to protect people against the Rex, against the tyrant, against oppression, against dictatorship, the only possibility is if a person like Abraham Avinu stands up to Nimrod and he says, Nimrod, you are not God. Nimrod says, I give the people rights and I take them away. I just have a right to get it. Abraham says, says, no. Man is created in the image of God. I, I'm using the, the, the standard translation. Man is created with certain God-given rights. That's the only possibility of standing up to ruthless dictators. Because what you're telling the dictator is, you're not the one who gave me the right. I don't need you to vindicate me. I'm created by God. God gave me what I have. And God gave me certain rights as a human being. That pulls the rug, that pulls the rug under the dictator. The main point of Abraham Avinu, and, and of course, the idea of there being one God was spectacular. And it stands at the center of everything. But there was also a political point, And that is, you Nimrod have no right to oppress the people. That's one of the great messages of the horizontal society. The message of the horizontal society is as follows. There are vertical societies. In vertical societies, there's the Rex on top, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you know it, can, it can happen within the context of what they call democracies. I mean, democracies, many democracies today are just there to make people, people feel good and feel like they're living a democracy with few people understanding, well, is this, what, what is democracy? What does that mean? How does it benefit me? Very, you know, it's democracy. Oh, good, that's great. By the way, I am, of course, in favor of democracy. 
um, not in favor of people unambiguously ex uh, accepting a government that says we're democratic and therefore we're good. Nevertheless, the idea of a vertical society is there's always going to be somebody on top and somebody a little lower and somebody a little lower, and the masses will be oppressed. They will be used by the people on top for whatever uh, purpose, for whatever agenda, and there's always an agenda. The idea of horizontal society says as follows. The relationship should, should be between man and the text. There is a text. The text was given by God. And in the text, I have certain rights, right? You're not allowed to oppress me, right? Um, uh, um, you're not allowed to overcharge me. All these rights, many, many rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many, many, many rights. These rights can't be touched by anybody. The king can't take these rights away from me. That's a horizontal society because the king himself has authority by virtue of the same text that gives me my rights. The king has no authority outside the context of that text. And therefore he cannot oppress me because he himself is subject to that text. So the horizontal society is a society which has the starting point is God. God communicate, communicated to us through this text. And we're all under the text. Our rights come from this text. And therefore there is no possibility of a vertical society which says, no, no, you're going to be oppressed and you're going to be under and you're going to be under and you're going to be under. So the Western world doesn't have hope because the Western world doesn't have that text. And you see but what's didn't the founding over. fathers, didn't the founding fathers kind of, forgive me for interrupting, but um, they kind of broke, they broke away from the British monarchy and they broke away from the Catholic church, which dominated the world. And they kind of wanted to establish a biblical Kind of system with the constitution in a sense is like the you know like what the torah is in a way and it everybody's rights are kind of bound by those laws so um isn't that kind of what they try to do and in that if that's the case why is it hopeless yeah first of all i agree with everything you said that's exactly what they did they took the constitution and they said the constitution will determine what the president's powers are you can't act outside the Constitution. The Constitution will determine what the Supreme Court's powers are. This Constitution will determine what the exec, uh, uh, the legislative branch of Congress's powers are. Exactly. Nothing outside the context of the Constitution. And the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, gives certain rights to individuals. There are certain freedoms. Exactly the way it was supposed to work. He took the Bible as they took the Bible, as the model. It could have worked perfectly. That's why you need a berit. The reason you need a bedit is you need a people who say, we are bound by the text. We are going to accept it. This is what we accept. We respect the text. We read the text. We study it in public. Every uh, once a week on Shabbat, we read the perasha and Shaniva um, Hamishi. Uh, we, we read the highlights of the perasha and we finish it from A to Z. We study the constitution every day. We delve into the study of it. Of the constitution of course none of that happens in the united states um they don't have the berit and that's the missing point if they had the berit people of the book book the book is entrusted to us by god because god trusts us to protect the book right and to live our lives according with the book 
and not to tear up the book. What they're doing today in the United States, to a certain extent, is they're tearing up the book. And leave politics aside, it doesn't matter whether you're in favor of this policy, against that policy, that doesn't interest me. I'm a rabbi, it interests me personally, but I'm talking as a rabbi, not as a politician. They're tearing up the Constitution. Clearly, that's happening as a matter of constitutional law. And there you see the Western world losing it. Is, is it a possibility that America will stand up and say, hold on, stop this. We want to return to the Constitution. We need the Constitution. Otherwise, things are going to turn into chaos. Maybe. I hope it happens. I live here, so I really do hope it happens. Will it happen? You know when it will happen? When Am Yisrael makes Teshuvah, and when we bring about Yemot HaMashiach, then there is a possibility for America and other countries to say, hey, look, look what they just did. We want to do the same thing. Let's return to the to our constitution and 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 return to a sense of freedom and normalcy. It seems like they like America started to go downhill once they started, like you said, destroying the symbols that brought us here, which is burning the flag, uh, getting removing God from uh, you know uh, anything regarding uh, you know the pledge allegiance or public schools, you know taking God away from the equation, that's kind of setting the tone for where we're headed. Um, and I, I agree with that. But with Judaism, even though you say there's a breach, and there's physically a breach, but most people, I would say that at least half of the Jews, because maybe a lot of them are traditional, a lot of Jews are traditional, um, but a lot of the Jews are, they don't feel kind of bound by the breach. They don't feel like, even though they have taken part in the breach, maybe probably against their will as a, as a baby, they have zero connection and they don't feel like it has a influence on them. So how, how is that? How do we see hope for Judaism? Right. And to add to that, also, you were talking about how the constitution is being torn up. Uh, there's, I, I don't know if I should say this or not, but like, you know, the, the, the Torah itself, you know, has been assaulted, <laughs> you know what I mean? Over the, over the course of a uh, well, generation, 200 years. Yeah. yeah. So I'm saying like, so, so how do you, Going with your analogy, how would you? Okay. So, I mean, let me answer the second question first. I mean, biblical criticism and all those, you know, uh, forms of so-called scholarship. I think with the passage of time, people will take those things less and less seriously. Um, I view that as an extreme form of Oedipal um, complex because uh, there was no scholarly reason. I mean, they, they, they would never treat the, the William Shakespeare, they would never treat the Kolod of Hammurabi, they would never treat um, any ancient text in the way they treated the Torah. That was simply uh, deplorable, yeah. what was done to the Torah. And it was done by Oedipal Jews who were essentially anti-Torah, anti-values, and wanted to adopt other values, and explicitly so. Um, it, it continues till today, but with archeological discoveries, and amazing archaeological discoveries in Israel, it's becoming more and more ludicrous for people to continue to talk about biblical criticism. Honestly, it's, 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 it's become really uh, just silly. And at some point, perhaps the biblical critics may wish to help themselves, avail themselves of um, you know, different therapeutics, um, because biblical criticism is not going to be taken seriously for too long. So you know, if they want to leave Judaism, that's fine, and do other things uh, with their time, that's fine. But I personally don't take biblical criticism seriously. I, I rarely speak in a derisive tone about anybody or anything, but the one exception I make is with respect to biblical critics, because I just, I see what they're doing. It's so pernicious and unscholarly, and it has such a clear agenda. Sure. And it flies in the face of 50 years of archaeological discoveries, each single discovery, everyone debunks everything that biblical critics told us. 
So just, we, we don't, I, I don't even, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, prove to me that the earth is not flat. I'm not going to get into that conversation. It's not necessary. Now, to the first point, I know that as a Jew, things often seem dark and, you know, where, where do we come from here? You know, the fact is that we do read the Torah every week in Knis. We do read it three times a week in Knesset. When the Torah comes out, everybody stands up the, from the Torah and everybody throws kisses to the Torah. We have that foundation. We have the reverence and the awe from the Torah. Although the Torah is, you know, perhaps what people don't understand what it is, but it's still there. And the Pasuk says, Yisrael lo yesha, lo yeshaker. The, the hope of Israel will never falter. Um, talk about Yemot Mashiach, and they talk about She'erit Israel, And I think it's a wonderful idea. What is she'erit Yisrael? My father explained this to me. Um, you know, when you, when you, if you're a bread baker, if you like making baguettes, and you know, one of the most important things is the type of yeast you use. And the type of yeast you use will affect, you know, how the dough rises and the taste in the dough. Obviously, you need to have good flour, right? But yeast is a very important uh, component. A se'or. Se'or means yeast. What is she'erit Yisrael about? So it's as follows. Uh, unfortunately, the Jewish people have been exposed to gentle, Gentile ideas for centuries and millennia. And as a result, we're kind of in a dormant state, right? I believe, and the idea of She'erit Yisrael is that one day the Se'or will come, the yeast will come and it will reactivate the dough and the dough will begin to grow and, and it will grow in accordance with the particular qualities of the yeast. We just need that se'or there. So she'erit Yisrael, there are the few hachamim, the few people who understand the emet. It's just a question of getting the emet out there to people. I find this, you know, as a rabbi, um, you know, I speak to people, you know, people are not so observant. And, and when I present Judaism to them, they actually are happy. I'm ha I'm so happy you they brought They actually are happy and they, huh? No, no, sorry. I'm happy you brought this up because we were going to ask you about your, your, your father's, you know, books and his teachings, his ideas really are so underrated and they're so uh, undervalued. And unfortunately, there's a resistance to it. But we feel like, you know, it's unfortunate there's like this can't be used as a tool for Kiruv. This can't be used as a tool to bring people closer because most people who actually, you know, allow, allow themselves to read it and without feeling any you know, biases towards it will actually appreciate what it's you know, coming to teach them. And it's, you can't deny what it's, what your father was teaching. So how, how do we make, how do we make something like this more, I guess, mainstream and more acceptable to the masses? Yeah, I, do, I don't know. That's a very good question. I don't know. Um, I think that ultimately we're going to have to have a core of people, teachers who teach the new generation in accordance with these ideas, you know? And, you know, and I don't say these new ideas, they're not new ideas. These are actually, you know, this is it. This is this is the Torah. This is an explanation of what the Berit is. It's an explanation of what the word misva means, explanation of the, the framework of Judaism. People need that. Because yeah. I'm telling you, when they get that, they're excited. I never knew that. Even yes. in Israel, my father used to teach in the law school in Netanya, and he was teaching primarily secular Jews. And these secular Jews, um, I, when my father's a funeral, one of them came to me, and, and uh, she said that she was profoundly 
she, she came to the funeral. She was, and, and, and she told me she was so profoundly moved by my father's teachings. It really, it affected her for the rest of her life. She never will view Judaism in the same way again. Now, my father taught in law school for a few years. So obviously the effects of that are limited. It's, it's, it's a course in law school that uh, you know, some students, I suppose, chose to take, or maybe they were required to take, nevertheless. But these ideas, yeah, you're right. They need to be taught to people so people wake up and understand what Judaism is about. Because right now, Judaism is being peddled as some sort of something else. And that's something else. Society. A vertical it's a vertical society. society because what uh, here, this is, this is really the point that I wanted to bring up. Because within Judaism, there is this vertical society where, you know, all of a sudden, our leadership is, a, is dynastic. Whereas in the Torah, obviously, it's, it goes, the, the, the uh, torch is passed to the person who is most qualified, Chacham. right? The Chacham. But now it's like his father was the greatest rabbi and his father's the greatest rabbi. So therefore we follow them blindly. And there's, they, they almost replace God because they are, they are the highest authority and nobody else can question. Everyone beneath them is, you know, a Benoni or a Rasha and we can't really question them. And if they make it, even if they sin, it's from our purview, it, it, we see it as a sin, but it's not actually a sin. It's actually, they're in Olama Atzilut. They have all these different excuses for it. So they're kind of protected. And the way it was, the way, it used to be is that nobody was protected. If a king violated his, his the, the law, he can lose his kingship. Uh, if a Kohen violated his uh, the laws of the ritual laws, he can either die or or lose his kahuna. So there's that doesn't exist today, you know, and it's unfortunate. So the people who are actually trying to speak the truth and trying to bring things back to um, the biblical times, they're being censored, they're being excommunicated, they're being abused. Um, there's a there's a violence to it, and it's it's very unfair. So I feel like we should try to bring it to the forefront. Yes, the question though is, when you say bring it to the forefront, does that mean we want to have a head-to-head -head, no. um, collision, or do we want to rather think of ways to um, market and market the ideas of the Torah? I don't like to say our ideas. Market the ideas of the Torah. To Am Israel, and 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 I think I I think ultimately we can never get to a head-to-head -head confrontation. We'll always lose. Doesn't right. work. Doesn't work. Right? Doesn't work. People think hierarchically. Who right. are you? He's a big rebbe. Who are you? People think of because we're part of the Western world. So as long as you're part of the Western world, which is a vertical world, mm -hmm. you will always lose in that argument. But I feel like the I allies, the ally, sorry, the the allies of of this view. Let's say of your father. Let's say would be let's say someone like Rabbi Sachs who probably don't see eye to eye on everything, but um, those are the, I think that's where it has to start with. I, I don't like to use the term modern Orthodox, but kind of the other schools of thought that kind of have a lot of, a lot in common and could, and share a lot of the same values and the same ideas, but can kind of, instead of kind of, I see at least there's a lot of arguments in between those groups where in reality, we, we more or less agree on the same thing. So let's, let's look at the big picture here and let's start having like, open forum discussions, conversations, you know, welcoming the other side to kind of, uh, let's say the Haredim to come in and, and have, have a discussion. And there we can actually make some progress. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's a valid point. Um, and um, I, I think you're right. I think there's more things that unite us than uh, differentiate. Hey, listen, well, you know, I don't need, I don't need a particularly high standard to love my fellow Jew. Um, and, and I mean that fully. Um, and I, I think that there has to be more openness, you know, and more, yeah, more dialogue, more discussions. But more importantly, to your point, because everything we just said is abstract, there has to be an understanding of the problem. 
That's what that's that's where you need to get, you know, understanding the problem among different groups. And the problem is that right now, Am Israel, most Jews don't understand what Torah and Misfot are about. Most Jews don't understand what the Berit is about. Most Jews don't understand what distinguishes Judaism from Islam and Christianity. We get it. That we, we know the content is different. I got that. But fundamentally, at the theological, epistemological level, how is it so different? And why does it matter? So it's a Christmas tree or a menorah. Why should that matter? It's, you know, nice lights and pretty. And, you know, we have Mausri and, and they have Christmas tree. So well, why should that matter? Um, they can't answer that. So I think it has to be an identification of the problem. And that's what can be the next um, possibility of uh, moving forward. Meaning once you identify the problem, then you can, you can hopefully deal with the problem. All right. And I think with the age of information um, being the internet and everything, we're, there's so much exposure to ideas. There's also a lot of, uh, it's very easy to get lost in the fake news kind of within Judaism, but there's some like there's access to articles that we and and uh, history that we've never seen before. So I think that's on our side because, you know, I think in this day and age, people are understanding that Judaism is a chokhmah, and there is there is wisdom beyond just the the surface level magical thinking that you see from let's say the a, a big contingent of Jews. So I think that's kind of on our side. I think we naturally will evolve towards that. And I think the fact that there's a revival within, um, you know, studying of Harambam all around the world in Israel, I think that's yeah. a great sign. I, I agree. I agree. There's, a, there's certainly a desire to find the truth. And um, we know that as, and, and not to, you know, uh, become too messianic, but we know that Nevi'im tell us as we get closer to Yamat HaMashiach, that people are going to be seeking out the truth. And, and, I, I, and I believe in it. I don't, I don't have any doubt. I don't have any doubt that we will come to the point where the truth is out there and people have access to it and, and people are touched by the truth because there's nothing more compelling than the truth. Once you understand it, you don't want to go back to the dark, uh, to the dark ages. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And as a final question, Harambam stresses that eradicating Avodazarah is on par with observing all the mitzvot. The average person sees idolatry as outdated and arcane, no longer relevant, something humanity has already overcome. Yet, the Rambam treats it as if it's more prevalent than ever before. Can you define what idolatry truly is? And can you give some examples of how it's still a major problem and what we can do to combat it? Right. I mean, so uh, what, I'll, what I like to do is I can't, I, 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 well, to explain what Abu Dazara is, there's a lot, there's a lot to say. There's different things to say. Um, you know, at the fundamental level, Abu Dazara means Abu Da Shehi Zara. It means to worship God in a way that he did not prescribe to be worshipped. So, of course, if you worship God through an idol, Abu Dat Elim, that would be, um, you know, a capital crime, right? It's worse. Avon, by the way, according to Alamam, there's nothing worse than Abu Dazara. Um, so, but Abu Dazara doesn't necessarily need to be idol worship. Abu Dazara is allowed to worship God through a way that's foreign to the Torah. It can be different things. It could be things that I was told to do, which are not necessarily um, 
in the Torah, right? So certain additions, certain, you know, I, I once heard a video and I was, I was, I was personally shocked. I saw the video, I would not have believed it, but somebody went to Meron and he literally started praying to Rashbi. He literally said, Rashbi, the Jewish people are in, it was a big rabbi, I don't want to say his name. Rashbi, the, 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 the Jewish people are in trouble. Answer us. Um, this is during the Corona days. There's a Magefa. Um, you know, that, that's Avodah Zarah. So, you know, to believe that somehow Avodah Zarah doesn't exist in our days is, is, is just not accurate from the perspective of Arambam. A person praying to a dead, you know, to, 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 a, to a dead person and going to his grave and literally mentioning his name. I mean, that's, you know, what happened to God? I mean, God is there. Like, why don't you pray to God? No, I'm going to pray to the dead person. Um, so Avodah Zarah still exists. Now, the important thing about Avodah Zarah is it teaches us a little humility. What gives me the right to approach God and to speak to him and to praise him even? I mean, really, who the heck am I with my limited brain to say, I mean, do I know that this is what God would want or expect of me? That's kind of an arrogant, audacious thing to do, right? Well, the answer is no, it's not audacious at all because the Pasuk says, right? right? So Hashem tells us, yeah, you expect it to. And the Chachamim tell us, you use a formula Moshe Rabbeinu used, and other things. So it's, it's not audacious in so much as has been told to do that. So I'll do it. Not doing it would be audacious. But then if I decide to do something else, do I have the right now to go to God and say, you know, in the days of the Mashiach, there's going to be no more korbanot. Um, you know, no, I shouldn't have korbanot uh, because, you know, I don't like it. I'm a vegan. Is, is that the right approach? Instead of korbanot, we'll bring, um, we'll bring something else. I don't know. Pizza. It's vegan. Is it vegan? Actually, no, it has cheese, but something of that nature. So the answer is no. That would be audacious of me to, to, to say that because I would be basically taking my own proclivities and imposing them upon God and deciding this is I'm going to worship God. So the great message of Abu Dazara is God is above us. Have a little humility. Don't just go to God and decide this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to say. And, you know, God accept my sacrifice. God may not accept your sacrifice. Look what happened to Cain. I don't know why he didn't like Cain's sacrifice. He didn't like it. He accepted Hevel's sacrifice. That was God's business, Right. So the message of Abu Dazara is you cannot just approach God at will. He's not your friend. He's above you. Be very careful what you say, what you think, and what you do when you're in the presence of God. And we're always in the presence of God. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. That was uh, um, unbelievable. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. And hopefully we can do it again one day. Hopefully. It would be a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you. Rabbi right. Abe, thank you so much. We really appreciate this. This was fantastic. <laughs>